that. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, you want to open up your Bibles? Why don't we all stand up together, get that blood flowing, we'll pray, ask God to bless our time in the Word. We're talking about uh, marriage and divorce today, and uh, uh, we're just going to cover two verses, but those two verses basically open into an ocean of things we could talk about this morning. So I really need prayer. Uh, I hope you would pray with me that God would be glorified and he would lead our time together. Sound good? Father God, we just come, Jesus, uh, in all sincerity and all reverence, and just bow our knees to our King. We, we bow our knees because we recognize that you're the one in control of our lives. You're the one who created us and purchased us at the cross. Uh, we owe our lives to you, God, and so we, we willfully bow our hearts before you this morning and just say thank you for all that you've done for us and the fact that you're patient with us. Lord, the fact that you love us so much that you would go to Calvary's cross, willfully laying your life down so that we can know and serve and love you. And Father, we thank you that to us, you are our bridegroom. We, the church, are your bride, and you purchased us for yourself, and we are forever grateful, and we will forever be with you, those of us who, who call you Lord and Savior and who have had you save us by your work, by your handiwork, by your intervention in our lives, God. We just want to say thank you. And Lord, I pray for anyone who, who would be here in our midst that does not know what it's like to be loved by you yet, to be forgiven of all their sin, that you would save them even this morning. It's, it's a place where you come. We invite you to come, for you to be here, for you to speak to hearts, for you to win souls, for your sake, for your glory alone. Uh, thank you for this family in which we can just uh, look at these things. Uh, marriage and divorce, God, is a relevant topic for everyone. And uh, Lord, I just want to do that justice. So please uh, fall afresh on me. Uh, minister to me in my heart. Use my lips, God, to proclaim your word this morning. To do it well, I just need your spirit. So fall fresh. And for all of us, we just uh, agree together by saying, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Okay, Matthew 5. Continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous speech, if you call it that, sermon, if you will, uh, ever known, ever preached. This is it. This is the top of the hill. This is the quintessential message given by Jesus himself to those that were following him. Some were following him because they loved him. Some were following him because they were curious, I'm sure. Some were following him because they wanted something that they saw was unique in him. And it was unlike those leaders that they were following at the time, the Pharisees and the scribes. There was a recognition that Jesus had something special and they wanted to know and be close to him. And so they're following him around and he gives this uses this opportunity to really teach them about God's heart and really his intention of the principles laid out in the word of God, in the law of God, in their Torah. And uh, basically he does that and... and really sets himself apart from any other rabbi had come before in basically saying, not just quoting other rabbis or saying this is what our sages had taught, but really going way beyond that saying, this is what I say to you. Now that's really important. Six times in this sermon, Jesus says, you've heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. You can only do that in discussing the word of God as revealed in the Old Testament, you can only say, but I say to you, if you have the authority to say, not only do I know what it means, 
but my word is as good as God's. That's really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you've heard it said, all of the teachers can be summarized in, in what I'm going to tell you, and that's the first dot, 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 if you will. All the teachers that you've ever heard, teaching of the law, comes and amounts to this. And he hits different subjects, whether it be murder, adultery, um, as Ben taught last week, really passionately, I should add. Um, it was awesome. Loved his message. In a lot of ways, I'm continuing that theme of, of what he was talking about last week, because this week, the next one he hits right after that is uh, marriage and divorce. And he has, basically sets up everything you've heard up to this point, everything that's surmised from everybody gone before you, in, and summarized in a such a way he can say, this is what you've heard, but this is what I say to you. And so what he's really saying is, I know what the original tent of the author was when he wrote it, mainly because we know that he was the author, um, and also, I'm going, I am the truth that you want to pursue, and I'm going to give you the original intent of what's been misinterpreted. I say it was misinterpreted because there's two groups of people. This is really important when you're studying the Sermon on the Mount. There's two groups of people that are leading the people that are actually listening to Jesus in this moment. There's the Pharisees, and then there's the scribes. Pharisees would have been, uh, spent their whole entire lives devoted to the study of the Torah, the Word of God, Old Testament in our Bibles. Um, you have the scribes who would be in charge of writing that down and, and for future generations and dissemination of the word of God, who would also be experts in the law of God. And these two groups coming together basically gave you what we would say is the foremost authority in their Jesus' time on what the Torah said. So if you wanted to know what really was meant by Deuteronomy 24, which we're going to look at in a sec, um, then you would go and say, hey, Rabbi, what do you think about this passage? Is it okay to divorce? In, for any reason, and he would say, blah, 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 okay, he would give his reasons. Well, Jesus knew that, for one, there was a bigger problem going on that he needed to address, and it was this. Anytime you come up with a standard of behavior that says, this is how I'm righteous before God, and it's not like God's original intent, you're going to live a life inferior to what God wants you to live. Does that make sense? Anytime you try and create for yourself some type of arbitrary standard of moral perfection, which by definition, anyone who tries to do that is going to make one lower than God's, I believe, because we're human and we're selfish. So if I want to make some type of perfection level that I can attain to, it's probably, if I'm creating it, going to be lower, okay? It's got to be lower than God's. Why? Because God's level of righteousness, his level of perfection is unattainable in our own flesh. In other words, you can't hit the bullseye. That's what sin means, missing the bullseye. If you try and say, I know the intent of God's law and I'm going to live according to it, you're going to fall in one way or another, or mostly all of it, in your attempts. But if you lower the bar and say, this is really what God meant, and in doing so, uh, make a new standard of righteousness, and it's lower than God's higher standard of righteousness, then it's attainable. And that really is what Jesus is going to shatter like glass He's going to throw a rock through that whole system that the Pharisees and scribes had set up to say, this is what it means to walk with God and be righteous before him. He's going to throw a rock through that system and say, you guys have missed the mark entirely. You've created basically traditions of men, and you're substituting those things for following and obeying God's word. And so he gives us not only the problem, the overall problem of what they're doing as leaders and addressing the truth of their fallacies to the people, but he's also saying, I'm going to say what it really means. I'm going to give you the summary of what God meant when he said such and such. 
Everybody with me? It's really important that we understand that. Otherwise, we fall in the same trap because you and I both know divorce as a topic is a difficult one. You guys, everyone knows somebody in this, I mean, I'm sure everyone personally has been affected by divorce in some way or another. Uh, my wife, in particular, my parents, my dad passed away after 30 years of marriage, um, so I didn't have divorce impact my immediate family. My wife's family, however, both of her parents were married and divorced twice. Um, her mom is not remarried a third time yet. I don't think she will. And then her father has, is now with a gal. He's living with her, and I don't know whether or not they're going to get married. I think at this point, he's pretty much, in all honesty, just given up on the whole idea altogether. But that being said, um, they have actually arrived at a place of peace where our fam our, my family on, on her side still get together during the holidays, and everybody's together. And at one point, um, it, it kind of strikes you as an amazing effort on their part to actually be at peace with one another to the point where <clears throat> we were at one event not too long ago where I was sitting next to my mother-in-law's best friend and she's there as well, obviously. And then in walks my, uh, when Wendy and I got married, my father-in-law was married to a gal who now had arrived at this event with her now present husband who is not my father-in-law. You with me? <laughs> and more than that, my father-in-law was there with his girlfriend sitting next to us. So you have one, two, and three, all in the same place. But it was like, in that moment, I was like, that's really cool um, that they're able to come together and not be at war, and we don't have to suffer that fallout of continual sin. Does that make sense? So there's a way where even the worst kind of scenarios as far as breakdown of relationship or commitment level, is still, there's still a way at peace there. But it's not optimal. Obviously, having one set of parents stay together and be married their, all their days is the goal of God. But it's not the end all. It's not the ultimate. It's not like he just wants longevity for the sake of longevity. He wants there to be a reflection. And this is a key, guys. What's at stake with marriage is that it's a possible reflection or messing up of the picture entirely of the gospel. Of the gospel. That God is our bridegroom as a church, and that we, his bride, have been prepared to be with him forever because of his endeavors on our behalf. That's the gospel. And when you see a marriage committed to Christ and lived out where one another serves and submits one to another, then you see a reflection of what God's redemptive work in our lives is all, is all about, and that's a glorious thing. So, as I talk about this onion, marriage, and then a bigger onion, divorce, in, in terms of our community and our society right now, I realize there's a whole, I mean, I literally book after book in the Bible and topic after topic of just thinking through how divorce and marriage affects all of us. It's unlimited. And I think that's why Brian's not here today is because he wanted me to do it, not him. Because it's just like, where do I start? What do I cover? How do I tackle this issue? And not, one, do it injustice or do an incomplete job, and number two, offend everybody where they want to leave, Okay? Uh, because I realize these are really, this is real life for, for all of us. And we live through the repercussions of these things. So I'm just going to go default mode and to say the best ideal has never changed. And Jesus is going to tell us exactly the same thing. That God had an original plan. We're going to look at what that was. And moreover, we're going to look at in the midst of failure to live up to those standards that God has. Not the Pharisees. We're going to look at the difference between the two. But to actually attain 
uh, to, to really live our lives in accordance to God's real intention for marriage, which is to be a picture of the gospel. If you're single today and you have intentions of being married, I want to up the ante that you wouldn't just say, she's good looking, it's all I need. You know, I want to ratchet it up, okay, as far as importance, that you wouldn't just fall in the trappings of this culture that says, eh, we'll give it a shot, okay? Really, that's what we're doing a lot of times. Because why? Because the standard has been lowered, and we're falling for it, okay? We're falling for it. So all Jesus is going to say is look at how it was in the beginning. So all that being said, chapter 5, look down your Bibles at verse 31 and 32, two verses. Jesus in the midst of talking about murder in the heart, adultery in the heart. He goes into this next topic of marriage and divorce. And he says basically in verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's read that again. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now the situation was this. Pharisees and the scribes had come to a conclusion based on Deuteronomy 24 primarily, as I understand it. Basically said this. If I'm not pleased with my wife, if I find a reason in her to divorce her, it's okay. Just make sure that the legal forms are filled out. That you give her literally a certificate that she can have in hand to therefore go forward in life signifying that, for one, um, she's free to remarry. Because if you have a certificate that proves that you've been divorced, that you just haven't left or ditched your family. Okay, as a woman, that would be really important, right? You want to give her a certificate of divorce because, why? Because if she goes from there and says, I'm, I want to marry you, and you're like, what, well, you're married? She's like, no, I'm not. My husband kicked me out. And you're like, prove it. She's like, here's my certificate signed by him. That's, that's the whole thing going on here. The problem was the end result of actually having a certificate in hand of divorce had become so rampant that it was basically like, hey, whatever reason you have, go ahead and get divorced. Just make sure you give her the piece of paper that goes with it. Okay, how far had they ratcheted down already? Okay, to this point, that's what was on the scene. So Jesus is going to throw, again, that proverbial standard, God's standard, he's going to give them right back to him. Turn to Matthew 19, because in this particular sermon, he doesn't address it as much as he does later on in the book of Matthew. Matthew records for us, and it becomes really insightful in where Jesus was coming from. Chapter 19 the Pharisees and the scribes, as they often did, were trying to entrap Jesus in his own words, in, in teaching something that they could say, see, we don't have to listen to this guy, because he's heretical. So it says in verse 19, it says, now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, notice that, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who had made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh? Now my Bible, as I'm sure it is in yours, there are italics on, one of, on most of that uh, four and five. The reason is because it's implied. It's not implicitly 
explicitly uh, written down, but it's implied because of what follows. It has to be there. Because it says, so, or therefore, then, they, who is he talking about? Male and female. They are no longer two, but one flesh. He makes that surmise based on verse 5. That's why we can confidently have it in there. Translators did that. So then, they are no, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Ah, we got him. Knew he was going to say that. They shouldn't get divorced. Ah, but in the law, says Moses, says it's okay. How do you deal with that, huh? And he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Okay, that's key. And I say to you, and he goes again, he says the same thing. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is, a, is divorced. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, that's a natural conclusion. They just came to like, wow, better just avoid that whole scene altogether because I'm not going to attain to that, you know. And he's like, that's their conclusion. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So there's various reasons why people have emasculated themselves. But there's one group that says, I want to serve the kingdom. And I don't want to be distracted. He's like, that's a hard saying. He's not going to beat around the bush. To be single your whole life is a difficult, it's a gift is what it is. To be able to have that heart that says, I'm going to serve the Lord um, unto him. And I'm not going to be distracted by, um, by marriage. And he says, he who's able to accept it, let him accept it. In other words, he's not going to say everybody has to get married. He's saying, this is difficult. This whole issue is difficult. Your hearts are wayward. You're going to stray like sheep by nature. You're not going to remain committed to your commitments, let alone your covenant to be together for life and the love and the cherish and all the things we say uh, during wedding ceremonies. Um, but here he says, this is what Moses did. Your guys' hearts were hard. Your guys' hearts were hard. You guys know and in any case of divorce, I don't care what situation is, somebody, somewhere along the way, whether it's one or eventually what happens is both, hearts get hard. Somebody turns off, in many cases, now let me preface this before. There's myriad of situations I could address here. Many situations why people get divorced. Many hardships, abuse, unfaithfulness. I don't love them anymore. She doesn't love me. She found somebody else. All those kind of things I'm just going to wait until the end, okay? So if you're looking for, hey, when is it okay? I'm just going to say, let's keep going back to what Jesus is saying. Keep going back to what Jesus is saying. It's safe ground, safe ground. Now you may be asking, okay, well, that's great and all, but what about my situation? I'm already past tense involved. It's great. I shouldn't have married the person or whatever, but what do I do now? Again, wait. We'll get to that. Um, maybe not as satisfactory as you would want me to go into it because there's, again, a myriad of ways we could address that or rather the situations are numerous. So rather than do that, let's stay focused on this, but he's basically saying, you guys harden your hearts. Some lot, sometime along the way, you decided it's better for me to shut down what's God-given, which is motivation for what? Reconciliation. Somebody turned off that opportunity for God to change their hearts to say, not only am I gonna persevere through this, but I'm gonna go through this time of difficulty in my marriage, and I'm gonna persevere with hope that Jesus, that, that Jesus is going to, or in this case, that Jehovah God, for these people of, of Israel, is going to make what I can't do on my own, which is change my own heart. 
to even want to persevere. Okay? In other words, if you guys, from a day to day, those of you guys who are married, you know what I mean? From day to day, it takes effort just to not blow it. You know? It's like you're going through life and you're like, Lord, please don't let me blow it today. You know? I'm going to offend my spouse. It's inevitable. Or I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm not going to say the thing they need to hear. We're going to be bitter or we're going to be tense because the bills are due. All this kind of stuff. We're just like, man, but to have a quality where you're like blessing each other, that's a whole nother level, is it? You're like, man, if you're, if you're in a marriage right now and you're like, man, I'm just so pumped to be married to my spouse. They're amazing. They're such a giving spouse. That, praise God for that. But that's not you just deciding I'm going to be a great spouse. Or them deciding they're going to be a great spot. It takes the Lord, doesn't it? Why? Because by definition, you and me, we're really good at being selfish. Paul goes so far to admit that because he basically says this in his Ephesians 5. You know, he talks about husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church. But then what does he say after that? He says, no one just ignores his body, his own body. No one does that. We all feed it. We all cherish it. So husbands, when you love your wives... It's just like doing that. It's like loving yourself. Like what? He's giving in to the fact that we're just selfish. We want to serve ourselves. We want to feed ourselves. We want to cherish ourselves. Anybody else comes second naturally. So if you have any desire whatsoever to serve your spouse, that's a supernatural work of the Lord. Praise God that I actually do have those feelings from time to time. It's important for me (laughs) to serve my spouse, right? When I look at Wendy, I don't want to look at her with duty in my mind. I want to look at her with, there's nothing I wouldn't do for her. And I want her to feel that same way towards me. If you know your spouse is just going through a list of duties, then it just hurts. Why? Because you want them to go beyond their own selfishness to a place where God is, who says, this, I want to empower you to bless your spouse. So you're not just getting to, to death to your part, but you're getting, man, what a great ride. And we happen to end it at death. Big difference between the two. But it's the opposite of hardening, hardening your heart. All that is the opposite of hardening your heart. And some of you are in a place where you're like, I could harden or I could just be softened. How do you, how do you avoid being hardened and go towards softening? You go towards the Lord and ask him for what you never had in the first place, which is a heart to go beyond your own selfishness and serve the other even when they don't deserve it, quote unquote. Uh, if you've been married any time at all, you just recognize, uh, we're going to blow it. <laughs> Along the line, we're going to hurt each other. But praise God that he's involved in the middle of this. That's why it's so tragic when marriages aren't based on the Lord because there's really not much hope for them to get over themselves enough to serve the spouse that they're with. And Jesus just says, this is the root of the problem. It's hardening your heart. So if you're having problems right now, so to speak, in your marriage, now it's the time to, to pray that God would soften, not allow you to do what's natural, which is a harden. And that's a supernatural work. And like Ben said repeatedly last week, you can't do it. So stop trying. Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. And if you're in, not married, but you know of marriages that are struggling or are having hardships or going through difficult times, that's your job to encourage them to trust, not themselves, but the Lord to provide what they need to go beyond themselves and their own selfishness. That established. Let's go on back to where did they get this idea of certificate of divorce in the first place? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And there, you're going to see there that they actually had good, a good point. It's like, hey, it's in the Bible. It says I can give a certificate of divorce. Things aren't as great as I thought or 
she didn't live up to my expectations or he didn't. <clears throat> you may be wondering as you're turning there, why do the scriptures always talk about, at least for majority of them, why do they talk about a man divorcing his wife? There's not much mention of a, of a wife divorcing her husband. In my mind, it's pretty simple. It's because it was a male-dominated society, and they were basically the ones in charge. And so um, addressing the woman wouldn't really be practical because she didn't really have much say. It was more or less uh, a male-dominated society, and thus my wife here is, it's my possession as much as my cattle or whatnot. You know, a lot, there wasn't, in fact, that's why Jesus is so amazingly radical in his days, because he uplifted the woman to what original intent was, as we see in Genesis 2. Um, it was no longer just an issue of property. She had, there was reason to minister to them. And even the woman at the well is like the ultimate example for me to see that that is true. But the Bible's going to talk about, even Deuteronomy 24, a man divorcing his wife. But you can obviously apply that the other way, too. So look at verse 1 of chapter 24. This is where they get it their question from. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as inheritance. Now, he's, he's basically addressing the fact that sin, uh, sin's going to happen, divorce is going to happen. Uh, in the event that it happens, this is how you should proceed. This is really an interesting passage because in some ways it looks pretty obvious that you could apply that to people that are divorced and remarried. Um, I don't know if it's going that far, but I do know is this. He's talking about if he finds uncleanness in his wife, that doesn't necessarily mean she's committed adultery. That just means that he's found some reason that she's less than perfect in some way or another. It's stronger than just kind of she irritates me, but it's not as, it's not as strong as She's defiled the marriage by adultery, um, by, by, by having uh, relations with another man. And, uh, but he basically says here, he doesn't say, if this happens, give her a certificate. Nor does Jesus say that. That's a key. He says, all cases except for marital infidelity, is, is, uh, you're causing that person to have further sin of adultery. But he doesn't say, get divorced. He says, this is, where, this is how you categorize that, that situation. Well, here's the same thing. The problem was they took this addressing of this particular situation of making sure that the woman was protected beyond that situation and actually addressing the fact that what happens if that husband and wife are no longer together and that's the second husband for her? Does the first husband get her back again? Is, is that the right thing to do? And Jesus is like, no. Or God in the, in the Torah is like, no. It, it, the the adultery has already taken place. It would it'd be a further defilement. That's an interesting thing. I don't know that I've quite got my head around that. But I, I can surmise something like this, is that he's basically saying, all we're doing at this point is adding sin upon more sin upon more sin. And that's never a good thing, right? You don't want to keep making things worse. In a way, I think, parenthetically speaking, I think I'm on safe grounding here to say that those of us who find themselves in, those people that find themselves remarried, and like that question of, man, are we living in perpetual adultery is this something I sh you know, should break up the marriage so I can go back to my original spouse? They're not married or whatever. I'm just saying it never does anybody any good, it would seem, 
especially in the light of this scripture, to keep compounding sin and breaking up more marriages so you can try and make something originally that was already sin better. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. That's where I think grace comes in, right? The, the purification of the Lord. So it's not that we have to run out and everybody get more divorce papers. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's like, be faithful and run to the Lord that whatever's done, you go and you make amends for it as best you can. So that means there's maybe still some apologizing that has to be done to former spouses. That means God may call you to say, you know what, I blew it. I blew my covenant with you. I blew my responsibility to seek the Lord or whatever. I wasn't a believer. I just want to apologize. Some of those things have not yet been done and that would be so healing for a relationship. It really would between people. We, we as Christians have the higher standard, though, that we cannot get away from, which is this. God intended us to be married for life, no matter what happens. Parenthetically, again, this is why it's so difficult to talk about this topic, is, well, what about abuse? What about if wife's getting beat? All those kind of things. You know what? God's given us a brain. If you're in jeopardy like that, even now, I would say you need to be at least removed from immediate danger and then pray to the Lord as how he would have you go about handling a situation like that because it, he may, he may, we don't want to discount this, he may do a miracle in the perpetrator's heart, okay? But if we run and say, oh, good, I'm free to, to get divorced now as if it's some type of good thing, we're, again, discounting God's original plan. Does that make sense? It's like if you're so quick to find a reason to get divorced, you're already asking the wrong question. The right question, I think, the better question was, Lord, how do you want to do a miracle in my situation. The problem is our culture is so divorce happy as such an option, and we're so used to seeing it, we get numb to the fact that it's all off. The whole system needs to be shattered by God's standard, which is pray for a heart that forgives, pray for reconciliation, etc., etc. Please turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This is your, if you're single right now, this is your preview to premarital counseling with the Rays. If you're married and you didn't have premarital counseling with the Rays, your marriage is just as blessed, but you missed out on this important part of our perspective on it. So, there's my humble opinion on this matter. But there's something amazing. I, what I would love to do is not just talk about divorce. I would love to talk about, in, in ending with this, is two things. One is, how do you view marriage that will keep you in a place of really working hard to make your marriage all that it can be, in the Lord. How do you make it so, if you're single, you're shooting for something higher than what society is feeding you as the norm and will, will help you kind of just make sure that you choose wisely, I guess. But to give all of us a refresher in the fact that marriage is a miracle and it points, again, right to the gospel. But it starts here in Genesis 2. Jesus said, in the beginning, you don't, in the beginning, it's always been this way, let's look at it. You can't get away from the reality of it, so we're gonna do that this morning. Genesis 2 says this, verse 18. It's amazing. This passage blows me away every time I read it. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he called them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took out one of his ribs. Good thing he put to sleep first. He took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, 
And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, they weren't ashamed. Man, that's a blessing, isn't it? They were together, perfect relationship was there, and that commentary on it is that they were not ashamed. There's glory to be had in being faithful to your spouse. There's glory to be had to have the Lord reconcile people that are odds in a marriage. There's glory to be had because, why? Because God's intention would that be nobody would, would be ashamed and that it would just be a, a garden experience of blessing. Now, not perfect. He knows we're, in, we're fallible people, but there would be an element of enjoyment together with the fruit, which is marriage together. But this is an interesting thing. God's perspective, God is so crazy about this idea of marriage that I want you to see something in the text that I missed a whole chunk of my Christian walk um, until I just, it just dawned on me one day. Verse 18 says, the Lord God says, it's not good. The man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Adam was given this gift, right? Eve. But unlike everything else that was created out of dust, he starts with his rib, takes it out, and says, this is my starting place. This is what I'm going to use to create this helpmate that I'm going to bring on the scene for Adam. That's amazing of itself, but think of the timing in which God says this. He says it's not good that Adam's alone. This is pre-fall. Adam has no idea what Eve, was gonna, what Eve is. The idea hasn't, I mean, how could he, right? Unless God said, hey, you know, get this. What I'm going to do, I'm going to put you to sleep, and I'm going to take a rib out, and I'm going to make this woman. He's like, what? That's crazy, you know? It's like, what? what's a woman? Why are you taking my rib out? You know, I, I think I need that. I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't lived that long. At any rate, what he does is he says, he says, it's not good that Adam's alone. That's crazy, you guys, because who's saying that? Yeah, that, that wasn't a trick question. Yeah, it was, it was God. Phew. All right, God, God said that, okay, because it said the Lord God said it's not good that he should be alone. What's crazy about that is he had perfect fellowship with his creation, Adam. Perfect. Can you imagine walking in the Garden of Eden, Eden with God himself, just talking like you would talk to your own spouse? Just talking about whatever. I don't know what they talked about. Didn't, didn't say. But imagine there's lots to talk about with God. And if you're with God, if you like just had private audience, okay, today at three, you have an appointment with God. He's going to tell you, <laughs> you're going to walk with him in uh, Mitchell Park, and you're going to have a good hour with God, and then you're not going to have any hindrance to that conversation whatsoever. He's going to be, you know, I mean, not even Moses could go with God in the, in the cool of the day without being held by God's hand against a rock for protection. Okay, this is miraculous stuff is my point. And God says, it wasn't Adam. He's like, it's not good that Adam's without Eve. That's what he's saying. It's not good. That's crazy, you guys, because God knows more than anyone else how unalone someone he would be if he's right there in unhindered fellowship. With me? So why would God even say such a thing? This is the mystery of, of the whole gospel. It starts here in my mind, is that God loves you because he loves you. It's like, I can't get my hand, head around that. God, you said it's not good that he's alone, but you're with him, and you're better than anybody else, and more fulfilling. My destination is heaven. I don't need anything besides you in heaven. How is that 
a, a place where you would say something like, it's not good that he's alone. Because the reality is he's anything but alone. And so to me, it's like, what do you do with that? I think what you do with it is you put it in a place of like, man, God must have some amazing plans for this relationship with Eve that he knows will be such a blessing in Adam's life and will be necessary for him that, that it's a true gift as if I want to bless someone with the most precious gift that I can give them being my own sons with what's going to bless them the most. Now, he has a choice after that to say, eh, thanks, God, that's pretty cool, and then ignore it. Or he has a chance to take what God's given him and cherish it and, and nourish it and do everything that Paul says we do naturally for ourselves. That's the call that we have for somebody else. And the, the amazing thing, if you know that God started out marriage that way, then you know that he's going to be for giving you what you need in your own marriage to glorify him as it was intended originally and not according to some sub-level standard that somebody creates like society in general for us that are in, in the Lord, okay? He's gonna give you what you need. He's gonna be excited to do that. Why? Because he's the one who created it and more than that, he just didn't create it because he was bored. He created it with a purpose. I wanna, I wanna end with, I wanna focus on turning Hosea, the book of Hosea, it's the first minor prophet. And I want to I give you what good news there is in this gospel today. And the way we're going to do it is just how God chose to do it. We're going to put it in the context of marriage. And as we're talking about marriage and divorce, this is kind of like the worst case scenario for, for people that are married in terms of the situation. The prophet Hosea the book of Hosea is a trip, okay? I'm just gonna say it straight out. It's just a trip because why God would choose to, I'm, I'm used to, I guess, I'm used to God giving a message to a prophet and the prophet going to proclaim it and he may or may not have people respond to it well, okay? But in here, Hosea, um, he's not only called to give a message but he's called to illustrate the message with his own life. And how does God call him to do that? Well, it says in verse one of the book of Hosea, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, get this, the Lord said to Hosea, go, Here's his, here are his orders for the prophet Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he gives him both the command, what he's supposed to do, literally not to just scoff this out as like kind of spiritual talk, but really to go do it. And he's telling him why. He's like, I want to give the people an image of what's happened spiritually. That they have gone after other gods, have gone after other gods, and in doing so, they have committed spiritual adultery. Because I, their husband, have not been um, attended to, I've been departed from. It says, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. That's the great sin right there. So all of us have gone straight, each of us have gone our own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Basically, we are wanderers. We wander from where we're supposed to be. In this case, the nation of Israel, Judah was saying, we don't need God, we want what's out there. In other words, there's the husband watching his wife only go away, but to play the harlot. In other words, I choose other people before my spouse, okay? That's the situation. 
And he says, because of that, Hosea, I want you to go out and I want you to marry someone. He's like, great, who do I marry? He's like, I want, to, I want you to go marry the worst prostitute you can find. That's basically what he's saying, the one who, who does those things. Now, it says he went and took this lady named Gomer, or I can't call her Gomer, so I'm going to say, took his wife, you know, like, Gomer, <laughs> just to do her justice. She'll appreciate it one day, I'm sure. Um, so he went and he took her, and she conceived and bore him a son. And jump down to, uh, to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, moreover, he says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest they strip her naked and expose her in the day as she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like dry land, and slay her with thirst. So he's basically saying, I'm going to work in my people's lives because they're the wayward wife, but I'm going to do it in a way that comes, brings discipline. In other words, whenever we're in sin, we need to recognize that we're in sin, but, um, but actually have God's perspective on things. That's called repentance. It's agreeing with what God's perspective is. And it says in verse 6, Therefore, uphold, I will hedge up your way with and I will wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. And then it was better for me. For then it was better for me than now. Verse 14. Therefore, now listen, listen to the heart of the father in these things. He's been devastated and to us, it would be just like somebody saying, I don't love you anymore, I'm out of here. Um, here's your certificate. But in verse 14, it says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor, the door of hope, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days of when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. And no longer call me my master. Amazing. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me for how long? Forever. You wayward people. People that didn't seek me. People that deserve punishment. Deserve eternal damnation. I will make a choice. Not after you've made yourself right. Now, now get this. This is so key for hurting marriages. This happens, this statement to us, I will betroth you to me forever, is a decision made in the heart of the Father when we're at our worst. You can apply the nation of Israel state to each one of us apart from Christ. And in that, he says, I will betroth to you, you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. There's the gospel. The miracle about this gospel is that per, permeates and pervades the saints that are in the kingdom of this king, that set this standard, that no matter how many hurts have gone on in a marriage, when somebody doesn't harden their heart, doesn't say, it's over, nothing else can be done, I'm too hurt, if somebody goes the opposite direction and says, God, I want to be like you were to Israel, then he has everything he has to have to do miracles in that marriage and to heal it. Because somebody's decided to be like their king who is just like that for them. You see, no one, 
No one can look at an adulterous spouse and say, I'm free of sin, you blew it entirely. Everyone can say, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, our sins vary, but God, I want to be like him, and I want to do the miraculous, and I want to leave him room to do that. Now, if the other person still does not respond, then I think we have different issues we're dealing with, but at least you're holding out hope. And I think that's why God would say, don't go remarry just because the first one failed, like that's the solution. Hold out hope that I can do the miraculous. And I don't think we do that enough. I know if, if I've been hurt, I just start thinking about how I've been hurt, how justified I am in that hurt, and then I can go on making my life. You know what? God says it's the adulterous wife that I love. And it's at that point that I'm going to betroth her. I'm going to decide that that's my wife. And then what does he do? He works out a plan of salvation where Jesus dies in all of our places. And he says, I'm proving my devotion to you as my wife that I'm going to prepare you as a bride for myself the only way possible, which is for you to be cleansed of your sin. And it only happens, you know, like a, a wedding gown on a wedding day, if it's all covered in, in, in red splashes of crimson, it's not usable on a wedding day, is it? But guess what? We all show up that way to Christ. When we come to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I'm the wayward one, and my marriage is just a symptom. <laughs> my whole life is running away from you, and you still chose to love me. Here's my wedding dress. It's all full of crimson stains. But I come to you and seek you and humble myself before you, knowing that you can forgive every sin. You can separate as far as the east is from the west. And he does that. So much so that Paul, in the New Testament, chapter 5 of Ephesians, says this. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as what? Just as whom? Christ did what? Love the church. But it doesn't stop there. It says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her that he might present, what? Her to himself, a glorious church, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. You see the work there on our behalf? We show up in stained clothes. This is the reality of it. And for marriages, the same, same remedy. Here are my stained clothes. I am sorry. I have done this. I've offended you. I've missed the mark. I've done these things. But yet, God in his mercy is able to forgive the deepest stain, and we come, and his work on our behalf is to present himself a glorious church where it's cleansed to the point where in Revelation chapter 19, in fact, turn there. This is just such great news. We'll just turn there and look together. What happens at the end of time? What analogy does he use to describe this miracle that in, in micro levels happens in our lives for the glory of God the Father? I'm just going to read this whole thing. It's worth it. And we'll, we'll, we'll have Nick come up, worship team, because we're celebrating communion today. It says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, and praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So there's judgment there for Babylon. And it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, 
as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God, omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See, you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isn't that amazing? That's our destination. Where Jesus, you did all the work to present me to yourself. And so how about his saints trying to emulate that king and do likewise in our own relationship? Now, as far as the specifics, again, what about my situation? You guys, I'm, I'm available all week. If you have specific questions about your particular situation or family situation or friend, uh, we could work through those things. But I think the fundamental premise is already clear, right? We don't want to add sin to, to other sin. We want to be righteous before the God, and we want, to, we want to live lives that look like him. So for you that are single, last word here on the topic is choose wisely. Make sure the person you have considered marriage with lives for this Savior who saves an adulterous wife. Make sure that's your aim because you're going to need it because lo and behold, you're going to have real life like everyone else. And the last thing you want is someone who isn't following the Lord if you have anything to say about it, okay? Second of all, if you're in a marriage, cherish it as the original created marriage was cherished. Recognize that God's original design has greatness written all over it. Not to be settled for, not to make it work for a lifetime just so you can reach death to you apart, but to actually have quality in your marriage. It takes dying yourself every day. And then for those of you that are in marriages that are struggling or been through some major stuff, I would just say there's hope in the gospel. And because there's hope in that God wants you to act like himself, he's going to empower you to get over the rough spots. And some of them are really major. And, and just as a testimony of someone who's apologized repeatedly to his wife, I would just say God is gracious. And when you hear the words, I forgive you, even when the feelings you know aren't there, but in faith they're saying, I forgive you, even before the feelings are there for me, in obedience to, to, the, to the Lord, man, it's just like freedom. Freedom bells ring loud, and you're actually more in love with the person than you even started out, because you realize they're being like their father. Everybody okay with this? Got it good? Okay, we're going to celebrate communion. What an appropriate celebration to have, knowing that the Savior, the bridegroom, has given us everything for the bride. And if you're not saved here today, in other words, you haven't come and, and bowed your knee to the King of Kings who died, symbolically portrayed in the bread and the cup, shed blood being the juice and broken body being the cracker, the, the table is open invitation for anybody who would come would sin and say, Lord, please examine my heart. I am not lived for you. Please forgive me of my sin. But if you refuse to do that, the communion table is closed. Okay, no one comes in boldness of their own righteousness or re reducing their sin to a non-issue. Everyone comes to the table of communion saying, God, I need you even today. Please forgive me. And so it's an open invitation to anybody who would come that would humble their hearts before Jesus. Okay, so let's stand, let's pray, and we'll worship. The ushers will be coming around and, as well, and we'll bring our tithes and our offerings together.
And uh, there's no obligation to give. This is a celebration of what Christ already done for us. Um, but we just want to pray and give our hearts, even now. Also, I just word if you have encouraged me. If you guys need prayer or anything, we're family. This whole area we haven't announced this much lately, but this area is people are going to be here. Some of our leaders to pray. If you have prayer marriages, you know that are hurting around you that need uh, just prayer lifted up or strength. Even if you have a great marriage, you just recognize, man, I just I need the strength of the Lord uh, just to not blow it, let alone have a great marriage. So that's there for you guys to pray, and uh, we'll just use the room today to worship God. Lord, we just thank you so much, Jesus for being our bridegroom who worked on our behalf to the point of death on the cross to save the wayward saints. And Lord, if we were saved by you, then we have everything we need as far as motivation to to reconcile with those in our lives. And God, I thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you pour out to each one of us in the form of, of the blood shed for us, God. The fact that our crimson stains that we show up in a wedding dress just stain completely, not fit for any use of a wedding. And Lord, you take those sins in our humble heart and our ask for forgiveness, God, and you take them and you make them cleaner than whiter than snow. As if they'd never been there in the first place. And sometimes, Lord, that just to be honest, that's hard for us to attribute to somebody else's case, that you would forgive them of all their sin. It's hard for us to forgive God. It's hard for us to go through personally being um, devastated in our relationships that means so much to us. But Lord, the glory of the gospel that you've given us today is that you have the heart of reconciliation for all of us and you will give us the power as we celebrate this communion even today. Resurrect in us, if it's dormant to any degree, resurrect in us a feeling of hope, of, of eagerness to show forth mercy to those around us and for us to seek out the forgiveness with which we need to seek out. Thank you for dying for us. I pray that if there be any in this room that are going their own way still, that you would save them even today, that they would come as a new creation to you. We ask in Christ. Just start off saying, give us clean hands.
give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us cadence. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another.
We're going to sing an old hymn. I hope you know it. If you don't, uh, the words should be up there on the screen for you. Before the throne.
Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. So grateful. We love you because you've committed, you betrothed us to yourself forever. Lord, we don't have to worry if we, we sin in one way, God, that we've forsaken you and you thus will forsake us. God, we, we, we know from your word, God, that you love us and no one can snatch you or snatch us out of your hand. Um, Lord, that if we're faithless, you're faithful. Lord, that we will be there arrayed in white linen because of your work and your work alone. And our righteousness, God, is, is totally, completely wrapped up in the Savior. And so we look to you for strength. We look to you for healing in our relationships. We look to you for our right standard of living. We look to you for just help. And I pray for every marriage in our fellowship, Calvary Slow, even today, God, that you would richly pour out your blessing and strength. And that you would just help us as a family support one another's marriages, whether single, married, or otherwise. That we might see you glorified and the gospel seen through our relationships of reconciliation. God, just love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I could, if I could, I want to, want to end on this hope-filled quick story, if you allow me. Quick story, I promise. I've done, I've done weddings. You guys, stay standing, because once you sit, you're going to feel like you're in another sermon. You're going to hate me. <laughs> there was one service that I, I had the ultimate... The profound privilege to perform a wedding. And actually, um, we have a gal in our fellowship who's been doing the, the communion for us. And her name's Loretta, and I asked her permission to share this. Um, but her and her husband, Larry, uh, Larry's now with the Lord. He died uh, this pre- previously in this past year. But um, I, saw, I got to witness a miraculous thing happen. Because when I first met Loretta, she came to me in need of the Big Buddies program for her son. Because her husband, Larry was in Oregon, totally separated from the family, really had little to do with their son at the time. And um, so that's how I got to know her. And so what ended up happening was um, one, one Christmas, they had been divorced, I may get the timing wrong, but years. It was not a small amount of time. And uh, he's in Oregon, she's down here. And then she came back after, after the holiday one time and, um, a few years back, and she said, James, a miracle's happened. And I said, what, what's happened? She goes, I went up to see Larry in Oregon, and uh, we were together, and the family was together, and we fell in love again. And I remember just, I'm still getting goosebumps. I remember thinking, what? Larry, like your ex-husband Larry, you know, the one that we've been talking about, praying about. And, and she said, yeah, something amazing happened. He's drawn our hearts together, and we reconciled. And then not too long after that, they, uh, he asked her to marry him, and I got to perform their wedding of the reunification of that marriage. And I think in that, there's, a, there's an amazing lesson because sometimes we just don't allow God the space to work miracles. And in this case, they hadn't remarried and they were able to reunite. And so I think for good reason, God tells us, hey, just stay unmarried if you're divorced. That's a general God standard. Why? Because we're allowing God to do miracles like that. And when I did his wedding, it was a real easy wedding ceremony to put together because it was all about the what? The gospel. And I said, guys, it's all about reconciliation. That's the gospel. That's the good news is that God's reconciled us to himself. But it was in the context of what? A wedding, a marriage. 
And uh, when Larry went to be with the Lord, I did his memorial service. And can I tell you the glory that's to be had and be able to give that as a testimony. And uh, Loretta is going back up to Oregon in a couple weeks. We're going to miss her. But um, what a glorious reminder in my heart, in my mind, even as we talk about today, that God does the miracles when we allow him space. So just to encourage everyone that it's entirely possible for him to do that. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.